Dear Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your holy word, for scripture, for the way you speak to us so powerfully, so mightily, through words spoken and written so long ago, through events um, that are all a part of history and your own salvation history, the way you are working out world events for your glory and for the benefit of your people. And so now we ask, as we dig into scripture, in this particular corner of scripture in the book of Daniel, we ask, Lord, that you would um, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you are saying, what you have said to your people in the past, and what you are saying to us today through this scripture. And we ask this um, in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, um, those of you who were here last week, you probably learned a lot more than you might have known about Daniel in the past. I don't know. Anybody remember what we talked about last week? This is part two of two on the prophet Daniel. And if you missed last week, you can still, you, you will, this will be a standalone. You'll still be able to get something out of today. But anybody who was here last week, remember, I don't want to put you on the spot, so I'm not going to call out names of people that I recognize who were here last week. But anybody happen to remember about Daniel? If you're looking in your Bible for the book of Daniel, so maybe you could get ahead of the game, you would find the book of Daniel following the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. It's going to be more than halfway in. If you look at your table of contents, it'll be after the Psalms, which is a big bulk to get past. Um, Everybody find it. Um, Does anybody remember who Daniel was? He's a young, you you can guess an Israelite. That's a really good guess. He was a young man in 605 B.C. when he was captured by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and he was carried away along with other exiles. Remember that um, when the Syrians came and took over the northern part of of the people of Israel and took them off into into Assyria, into exile there, they took, um, that was about 150 years before um, then the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, came and conquered Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem fell a few years after um, Nebuchadnezzar took some of these exiles with him back home to Babylon. Now, Daniel was one of those exiles, and we heard last week that in the first couple of chapters of the book, we find out that Daniel's not the only one. There are a couple of other young men. Anybody remember those famous young men? I'll give you a hint. It's cool in the furnace, and their names are really cool. Yes, go Bible school. Go Sunday school. That was great. Yeah, Shadrach, bonus points. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's a good Bible trivia for you. And remember their story that in the midst of great adversity, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of being at um, under the rule and the authority of someone who was not worshiping the same God as them, someone who was not worshiping Yahweh, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were given great favor. They were there, and the Lord protected them from destruction. Remember, in, in particular, we talked about the fiery furnace and how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, along with Daniel, refused to bow down and worship this idol that King Nebuchadnezzar wanted the, all of his people to worship. And as a result, they were cast into the fiery furnace, which was stoked so high that the men who were throwing them into the furnace were actually killed by the heat, by the fire from the furnace, as they were trying to throw these young men in. 
And yet the Lord was there with them. The Lord was so palpably with them in the midst of their trial, in the midst of their adversity. Those who were looking on said that there weren't just the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, but there was a fourth. And the fourth one looked like a god is what these pagan um, Babylonians said because they couldn't recognize an angel. And some even say, some Christians even say retrospect, um, looking back in retrospect, maybe it was Jesus who was there present with them in the fiery furnace, protecting them from the flames and preserving their life. And so that was one example from the book of Daniel where we, where we looked at adversity and great suffering that some of the people during this time of exile, when the Israelites were in exile in Babylon, where God met people in the midst of great suffering, great persecution, and great trial. And we said two things about that. In the midst of adversity, what we can learn from Daniel and what is true for us today as Christians is that God is with us and that God is for us. God is with us because he enters into our suffering. Even though he is sovereign and transcendent, he's holy, he's majestic, he's way up high. Remember I said near and far, right, from Sesame Street. And he is far in his holiness. He's far in his majesty. He's far because he's completely other than what we are. He's the creator, and we are part of his creation. And so in that, we know, I'm trying to, let's see, there's some over there, yeah. In that, we know he's far from us, and yet he delights to enter in. He has mercy on us. And he comes down and he enters into creation. And we see that from the beginning of scripture. We see that even right after the fall, where the Lord is integrally involved in the affairs of the world. He's not like the enlightenment idea of a God that is distant. He is not the clockmaker who sets up creation and then winds it up and steps back and says, you're on your own. No, God is involved. He's involved in our lives and he's involved in our world. He is with us. And we know that he is with us first and foremost by looking back on the moment of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. From the moment that Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, says, yes, I'll go. I'll go and be a human being. I'll go and be born as a baby in Bethlehem. That's the moment if we ever forget that God is with us. We can look at that and say, Jesus Christ himself, God incarnate, God entered into the suffering of what it means to be a human being. At the very basic level, God has entered in. And then Jesus, of course, went so low, went so um, low in his humility that he deigned to suffer and die on a cross for us. So he has known suffering in this life. Any suffering that we know in this life, God knows as well. He has taken it on himself. So God is with us. He enters into our suffering. And God is not just with us. If you recall from last week, I said um, that Dean Limehouse really was so, you know how he's so adamant about stuff. And he's very, this is the way it is. And it was really helpful for me. He said, you know, it doesn't matter if God is with us if he is not also for us. And a lot of people want to assert that God is with us. He enters in. He is made human and um, enters into our suffering. But that doesn't amount to a hill of beans if he can't overcome our suffering as well. That's all well and good if Jesus is walking by my side, if he isn't also victorious over sin and death. 
And so that is what we know when we say God is for us. What we mean is he's not just entered into our suffering and into creation with us. Rather, he's still outside of creation. He's still sovereign and all-powerful over the events of our lives and over world events. God is for us. And not only that, not only is he able, but he delights by virtue of his compassion and mercy. He delights to break into world events, to break into um, the human situation, to redeem us from sin. Um, it's by his breaking in um, that the through Jesus's death and his resurrection that we are forgiven and that we have the hope of resurrection and eternal life. Okay. Anybody remember that from last week? I also gave you a little homework to go ahead and look at Daniel in the lion's den if you got a chance. Anybody remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den from Sunday school? How is that story? Remember, Daniel was supposed to bow down and worship the king. It's a different king this time. It's King Darius. And um, that's because, and we're going to look at a little bit of this today, King Darius took over Babylon because the Persian Empire came in the midst of Daniel's life in AD, or no, excuse me, B.C., 539, the Persian Empire, which had been gaining strength all the way up here, broke in and took over Babylon as well. And Daniel, thankfully, you know, transferred over to the new king without a hitch. But there the new king had um, wonderfully appreciated his service as an advisor, as a counselor, as a ruler under him. And But yet the king then was enticed by people who were jealous of Daniel to pass a law that everyone in his kingdom had to worship him as if he were a god. And of course, Daniel could not do this. And part of the law said that anyone who would not do this would have to be thrown into the lion's den. So does anybody remember in chapter 6 of Daniel what happens to Daniel when he's thrown into the lion's den? Anybody? God is with him there in the lion's den, and God is for him. The lions are hungry, and yet... In the morning, when the king goes, he runs to go and find Daniel. And what does he find? Except that Daniel's sitting there, and the lions' mouths are all closed. They're not even roaring. Um, they're docile as cats. Cats aren't that, that docile. But they're <laughs> docile as maybe. Yeah, docile as bunnies. They're like bunnies. Not like cats. They're like bunnies. They have not touched him. They have. Um, he's alive and well. And that is one of these many events throughout the book of Daniel, throughout the historical events in Daniel, which are narrated from chapter 1 to chapter 6, where we see God working on behalf of his people and then also working to cause the kings of, um, of Babylon and of Persia and of Medea to believe in him as the one true God. So if you don't believe in miracles, that's going to be a hard pill to swallow. But we can trust that God is with us and God is for us. When we look at Jesus' death and resurrection, miracles are possible. That right there is the greatest miracle of all, right? That God would deign to be born as a baby in Bethlehem, that he would go to the cross to redeem us from our sins, that he would conquer death and rise from death, and that we too one day would have that hope of resurrection. So as Christians, we are people that believe in miracles. Um, if you are ever looking for a good read, I recommend Eric Metaxas's book on miracles. Because in his book, he makes the very good point that miracles, believing in miracles, real, true, live miracles, not just happy coincidences, not just the miracles of our hearts where things are changed and transformed. Those are miracles, I think. 
but those are often um, not as clearly supernatural. But some of these supernatural miracles, God breaking in from outside of our created world, miracles, he says, are not irrational if there is no other rational explanation for an event. If science cannot find a rational explanation for, a, for an event, then it's rational to assume that something else that we cannot understand, that we cannot quantify, that's outside of our created world is breaking in at that moment. It's a beautiful argument, and I'm not going to do justice to it here, but if that's something that intrigues you, I want to encourage you to go ahead and read that book. Well, the reason why I bring up miracles is as it's a segue from last week, but also into this week, because this week we're talking about the apocalyptic prophecies in Daniel's book, which you can find, you can find them somewhat sprinkled in in chapters 1 through 6 in the form of dreams that occur to King Nebuchadnezzar in the form of the writing on the wall. Does anybody remember the incident of the writing on the wall? King Belshazzar, who's a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, he's having a big party, and we find out through other outside sources of history he's having a big party in Babylon because it's the very night before the general of the Persians is going to break into his capital city and capture the city. And so he thinks, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? And yet he goes way beyond, he oversteps his boundaries and he takes the vessels that he had stolen. And this is in chapter 5, if you want to look along in, in Daniel. He takes the vessels that they had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so many generations before. And he is so blasphemous as to be drinking wine out of the holy vessels from God's temple. And what, appear, what happens is that he sees a hand writing on the wall. And he doesn't know what it means, and none of his advisors or magicians know what it means. And so they bring in Daniel, who's now an old man, to tell them what this means. And Daniel essentially says, it means that you're going to be judged, that God is going to judge you for your arrogance, that you are so arrogant as to drink from God's holy vessels. And, um, and what happens is that that night, that king dies. Daniel predicts it, and it happens right there in the book. There's another example earlier in chapter 4 where King Nebuchadnezzar also has a dream. And in his dream, um, as it's interpreted by Daniel, what Daniel says to him is that the dream means that he's going to go mad. Again, because of his arrogance in saying, all of this kingdom I built for myself. Look at all this amazing thing all these amazing things, this wonderful kingdom that I built for myself. And what the Lord says to him is, because you've said that, because you've said that you've done that, I'm going to humble you for a season. And the way the Lord humbles him, he prophesies through Daniel that he would humble him by making him mad. And outside sources seem to tell us that King Nebuchadnezzar was indeed mad the way um, Daniel says that he was. For a couple of years, he went off, he thought he was an animal, and he acted like an animal. And, and then and then he shook it off somehow. He was humbled and then brought back into leadership and finished off his reign. But what a strange thing. So those are two examples. Chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar acting like a wild raving beast. And then Belshazzar seeing the writing on the wall. And then having that writing on the wall fulfilled within 24 hours of the writing. Those are examples in Daniel where prophecy comes true right after it's been prophesied as it's been prophesied and so that is a kind of miracle it's a miracle of God breaking in it's not really a happy miracle but it's a sign that God is sovereign over the created events of our world God breaks in and you know what he does he does what he says he's going to do he says he's going to do it 
and then he goes ahead and does it. So what does, what does that matter? Why is that important for us? Well, all throughout the book of Daniel and in other passages in the book of Daniel, if you were to read it from beginning to end, all 12 chapters, what you'd see is that beginning in chapter 7, there are a lot of prophecies. And then prophecies, if you were to read chapter 7 through chapter 12, on your own, you would find a lot of prophecies that feel like the book of Revelation, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, at the end of scripture, which is a Christian book, which is following Jesus' coming, even as Daniel is prior to Jesus' coming, there are similarities. And we know that, um, that Revelation builds off of what was given to Daniel in terms of being apocalyptic prophecy. Well, a lot of critical scholars will look at this prophecy in Daniel and it's very specific. He talks about these kingdoms that are going to rise up one after another, that are going to take over the known world all throughout this fertile crescent, all throughout the ancient Near East. And as Daniel prophesies, um, that's actually what would happen in centuries following Daniel's lifetime. Daniel, we think, died in 537, and yet the events that he prophesied about continue to happen all the way up for sure until A.D. 165, or excuse me, B.C. 165, and it looks as though he also prophesied about about Jesus' own coming, um, and then even further on beyond that about the end of the world itself. And so what a lot of critical scholars want to say is how could he get it so good? How could he be so close and so accurate and so specific about what was going on? And they say, well, he must have been writing after the fact. It's not actually prophecy. Maybe it's just history. He's writing this history. And, um, but when you look at the scripture, when you believe in miracles, is it possible that God could do that? That he could say ahead of time really specifically what's going to happen and then do it? Well, if we believe that's possible, then we can believe that this is actually prophecy, that it was actually written by Daniel in the 500s and not in the 100s BC after it, a lot of it had happened. Okay, that was very technical and probably boring for a lot of you. Any questions about that, about predictive prophecy and the possibility of there being predictive prophecy simply because we believe in miracles as Christians? Okay. Okay, good. Well, thank you. Thank you for sitting through that. Um, now we're going to look at the good stuff. I think I said to you last week it was um, that Daniel is wild and it's wacky and it's wonderful and weird. It is a weird book. If you read it, you're going to find a lot of really surprising images. You're going to be troubled by them. You're not going to know what they mean. And you might even say, well, how am I going to read this devotionally? Because it doesn't make me feel good right after I read it. I think we tend as Christians to go right to the books of the Bible or the verses that make us feel good in the moment. But there is so much more to be gained by reading from beginning to end, like through the Bible in a year blog, or by going right to those books of the Bible that you think, I have no idea what this means. I have no idea how this is going to help me. You might want to also read something that you know is going to make you feel good while you read the very confusing stuff. Um, but one of the things I want to give you today, uh, when you go from here, I hope that you will feel confident enough to go to these passages and read them, knowing what God's big picture message is for you and for me, and how Daniel, writing in the, fifth, in the 6th century B.C., can still have something to say to us today. God is still speaking to us today through Daniel's visions. So we're going to go to chapter 7 
And I'm just going to go, I'm just going to ask you um, if someone would feel like reading. You might have a couple different versions. I know we have some NIV and some ESV. So just hang tight. If the words are different, follow along with the verses. Um, And if someone would read verses 1 through 8, that'd be great. Yeah, go for it. Go, Pat. Thank you. Daniel's dream of four beasts. In the first year of Belshazzar. Belshazzar. Just go for it. Belshazzar, uh, yeah. King of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea, four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Uh, did you go all the way through eight? Yeah, just say eight. Okay. Sure. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and the three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. What in the world? <laughs> Did you catch that? Well, you know, and, and this little bit, we only read eight verses. You can be glad of me for that. But if you were to go on, read, read chapter 10, 11, and 12, you, your head will be spinning because there's a lot of this. There, and there was beasts, and then this happened, and then there were horns, and then there was this, and they're, and they're all symbolic and representative. And we get later on um, as though Daniel is making very specific wi- uh, uh, proclamations about which kingdoms these are. And so in a prophecy earlier given to um, Nebuchadnezzar in one of his dreams, there was also this number four. There are four beasts that Pat just read about. There are four kingdoms and four empires that um, took over the ancient Near East um, during Daniel's life and not long after Daniel's life. We saw Babylon 
you know, arching over and taking over Palestine. Then after that came the combined empire of the Medes and the Persians, and that came in and took over Babylon. And then following that, what happened was that Alexander the Great conquered all of those areas to the east in the 300s BC. And then what happened is that only 10 years after Alexander the Great conquered all those lands, he didn't have an heir, and he did maybe a wise thing, maybe an unwise thing. He divided up his kingdom among four of his generals. And so those four generals duped it out and kind of fought against each other to try to regain one big, vast empire. All of this is something that Daniel is being given insight to by the Lord several centuries before it happens, which is kind of amazing that God is giving him that insight. Um, And then you must wonder, well, why all this wild imagery? First of all, is it literal? No, it's symbolic. Whenever you read Revelation 2, knowing what is symbolic and what is not is going to really help you in understanding it. And a really helpful goal in interpreting and trying to understand this is to fall off, is to not fall off the road on either side, Um, to not just ignore these passages and say, well, I can't understand them, so I'm not going to read them at all. They're just sort of incomprehensible to me, so I'm not even going to try. That's one danger, is that we would run away from them. The other danger is that we would get so engrossed in them um, that we obsess over our own interpretation of them. Um, Especially this happens, you see this happening a lot with Revelation. Um, Have you ever heard people say, oh, that public, you know, that event in um, our history is this event in Revelation. Um, The falling star, the one I always hear is the falling star is Chernobyl. Um, or they'll align up current events with different events in Revelation as a way of saying, see, the end is coming. Jesus is near. And they don't have to do that because the message of the whole book is the end is coming. Jesus is near. And if you start to line up these symbols with actual events one to one, then what you're going to do is you're going to wonder, well, why hasn't he come back yet? He's supposed to come right now when my little formula says he's going to come back. And that's the danger, that's the trap, is that we get so obsessed with one particular interpretation of these very mysterious symbols. There is no one authoritative interpretation of all of these symbols except the bigger message of these books. Jesus is coming back. The world will end. It's going to get worse before it ends. But when it ends, it's actually going to be a good thing. There will be judgment. And those who believe in Jesus will be raised and have life eternal with him. That's it. That's all you got to know. So trying to figure out, is this falling star Chernobyl? Is that, don't get caught up in that. So that's the danger on the other side, that you would get so engrossed in it that you would come up with these absolute interpretations that are not absolute. Well, and then the images, all these wild, wacky images of horns and beasts that are combined composite animals that are so baffling. How could one ram have ten horns on his head? You just can't go there. Um, a lot of what, ha- what we hear about and read about in Revelation goes all the way back to Daniel. Daniel is the first apocalyptic book that has some of these images and some of these strange and disturbing ideas. If you just look at some of the archaeological evidence from Babylon, you see things like this. right? So this is all around Daniel while he's writing, while he's receiving this apocalyptic vision from the Lord. So this may- it actually makes sense to him. Right? And so we shouldn't worry about why it doesn't make sense to us. It made sense to him, and the numbers were really important for them in understanding when, why, and how many. 
Okay. So, um, any questions about that before I go into some more of the what in the world does this mean and why does it matter for us? When you said the images were around, yeah, like, what do you mean? Do you mean that was an art, like? Yeah. This is some of the artwork that would have been surrounding Daniel in Babylon. That's not a watch, even though it really looks like one. I just saw that. Do you see that? Isn't that amazing? Um, these are some of, this is a bas-relief from Babylon. And so because he was serving the king and he was on the king's council for so many decades, he would have been surrounded by this kind of artwork. And by this kind, they're in their mindset in the Babylonian mythology. This is an image of one of their pagan gods with his wings and things like that fighting this mythical beast. And so in their mindset, this hybrid, these hybrid beasts and things like that were just part of the world. And so it wasn't as strange as it would be for us. Like, how would you pull that out of our imaginations? <laughs> if the Lord was revealing that same apocalyptic vision that he revealed to Daniel to us today, it just might be that we would have different scary images in our heads than what were the scary images in Daniel's head that made sense to him to put down on paper. Um, and the Lord used those images to speak to him. He was like, yeah, yeah, a lion with wings, that's right. Or a leopard with four heads, uh-huh, that makes sense to me. Um, because he was seeing stuff like that. But if the Lord was speaking to us in that way today, I have a feeling he'd use other imagery that makes sense to us to explain and to help prepare us for whatever might come next, even as he was preparing Daniel for what would come next. And so the big picture point of what is God preparing his people for by giving them this revelation, this revealing of what's going to happen and of what God is doing, the whole purpose is so that his people would know that he is in control. As one of the commentators says, God is... You know, if someone's over there, if you want to just, if you find the box in the bookcase, just turn the knob all the way down, then we won't hear coughing. Yeah, thank you, Pete. Um, so God is constantly overruling and judging in the affairs of men, putting down the mighty from their seats, overthrowing unjust regimes, and effectively bringing in his kingdom, which is to embrace all nations. Whatever is going on in the world, as troubling as it is, as troubling as it was for Daniel in that day and age, as troubling as it is for us today, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time watching the news. I have a hard time knowing what's going on in the world. I want to know. It's like a disaster that I can't keep my eyes away from the screen. I can't stop watching because I want to know. I need to know. And yet in some, on some level, it can be terrifying to think, what is the world going to be like in 20 years? What will the world be like in 30 years? What will the world be like in 50 years? Those are the questions that Daniel was also asking. Those were the questions that the people of God under um, Babylonian rule were also asking. Is God in control of the events of human history? Is God in control and will be, we be rescued from danger, from persecution, from the oppression? And the answer is yes, even though it might not seem like it. At the time, even though events seem to be getting worse and worse, even though one despotic king is simply replaced by another despotic king, God is still in control and God is orchestrating human history, bringing about about the eventual um, end and his eventual purposes for all humanity. Um, and so we see this in the way that Daniel's prophecies line up. Um, Daniel, as he was prophesying, when you think about prophecy, it's this um, there's this feature called telescoping, 
where if you look in a telescope, if you were to look in a telescope at a mountain range in your telescope, you would see all these different ridges, right? Um, but sometimes it's hard to see just from a telescope which, which mountains are closer to you and which are further away. And so there's that same aspect that's present in biblical prophecy and especially in apocalyptic prophecy in scripture. You don't always know which event is going to happen first. And especially the person who received the prophecy doesn't always know which event will happen first and not just that, but doesn't know how far back the events will go. So Daniel might have thought that he was talking about stuff that would happen within 100 years of his lifetime when it took 500 years for all of that to come true. And when the ultimate fulfillment of what the Lord showed him would still be more than 2,500 years away because some of what Daniel was shown hasn't happened yet. Okay, so we're going to read the next part of chapter 7. Does someone looking at chapter 7 want to read um, verses 9 through 10? Uh, Oh, sorry. Yeah, verses 9 through 10 and then 13 through 14. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Jesus. Yes. Jesus used that phrase, son of man, in the Gospels, especially in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to talk about himself. And no one knew what he was talking about. It was not a title that had been used in, um, in Israel's prophecy about the Messiah. So they weren't sure what he meant. He meant Daniel 7, 13. He was saying, I am the man that is going to come on the clouds of heaven with the everlasting kingdom from God Almighty. The kingdom that will reign, the kingdom that will break down all earthly and false kingdoms, the kingdom that will last forever, the kingdom where justice and peace will reign. And so what we see in that is that um, the Lord is saying to Daniel, look ahead, look to the future, Look in hope. There will be an everlasting kingdom. There will be um, hope for you in one who's coming from me, straight from me, one like a son of man, one who is human and yet so much more. And one of the other things Daniel says about that is that the saints of the Most High will be a part of that kingdom. And that means all of us. Um, And so what do we do with that? What do we do with this knowledge that Jesus, when he came on earth, he was coming to begin the establishment of his reign as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We can trust that when we look to the Gospels, when we look to Scripture. And yet, is his kingdom fully established? 
No, it won't be fully established until he returns a second time. His second coming will bring the fulfillment of this promise to um, God's people through Daniel into our lives as well. If you ever forget what that will look like, I love, I mean, I don't think this is exactly what it will look like. We have a representation of Jesus' second coming, his second advent, just to the right um, in our chancel. As you look towards the table, just to the right, there's there are purple clouds, and there is Jesus enthroned in all power, coming um, and coming to bring all those who believe in him into his kingdom. And so Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of these kingdoms. So one last word on that for us, what does this mean? Well, if you're ever feeling like, if it ever is um, seeming like when you look at the news or in your life when you feel like there's a great catastrophe, if it feels like the end of the world as you know it, which I love that song from R.E.M., it's the end of the world as we, as we know it, and I feel fine. The only way to feel fine in the midst of the crises and catastrophes of this life, whether they're of your personal life or whether you're looking at the news and at all the horrible things going on in the world, um, we can trust, we can know the only reason why we feel fine in the midst of this is because we know that God is in control and in Jesus Christ, he is on our side. He who has not judged us because of his own death, he who has not condemned us for our sins, but calls us righteous in him, he also will bring us to everlasting life. He also will redeem and restore all that is lost and broken and hurting in this world of ours. So let's pray with that in mind. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence in human history, your breaking in to be born as a baby in Bethlehem, and your um, dying on that cross as a sign to us once and for all that our sins are forgiven, that we are redeemed and righteous in you because of your righteousness, and that one day we know, Lord, even as you went away on the clouds at your ascension, we know that you will come back. And so we say, Maranatha, as those early Christians said, come, Lord Jesus, our hearts are hurting. Our world is longing for you. Come and make things right, even as you promised you would do to Daniel so long ago. Even as you promised him, so you promise us as well. And so we ask, come Lord Jesus. And we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.